If a financial arrangement sounds unusual, or if a financial burden shifts from physicians to a designated health service entity, the arrangement may not be commercially reasonable. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Today, we're going to talk about commercial reasonableness. When the Stark Law came out, I believe that a lot of people, including a lot of healthcare attorneys, felt that fair market value and commercial reasonableness was the same thing. However, commercial reasonableness is a separate and distinct test under the Stark Law. Something could be fair market value, yet not be commercially reasonable. And my hope today during this episode that we'll unpack the difference between fair market value and commercial reasonableness, and also I'll provide some examples of what could be commercially reasonable and what may not be commercially reasonable. So let's first hit with the definition. The final rules that became effective in January of 2021 gave us some further insight to the definition of commercial reasonableness. And it has a two-part test. Under the Stark Law, commercially reasonable means that a particular arrangement either furthers a legitimate business purpose of the parties to the arrangement, and this is both the physicians as well as the DHS entity, and is sensible considering the characteristics of the parties, including their size, type, scope, and specialty. Again, the two-part test, it furthers a legitimate business purpose and is sensible considering the characteristics of the parties, including their size, type, scope, and specialty. The uh, Stark Law further defined in the final rules of January 2021 that the determination of commercial reasonableness is not one of valuation. I think when the Stark Law was first adopted, a lot of people felt that fair market value and commercial reasonableness was the same thing, and they're not. Um, some people believe that if it was fair market value, then therefore, by definition, the arrangement is commercially reasonable. But commercial reasonableness is more of a qualitative analysis, not a quantitative analysis. So arrangement may be commercially reasonable even if it does not result in a profit for one or more of the parties. Uh, so I think that a lot of people felt, and especially there's been a few cases, the uh, North Broward case is, is one, uh, the Toomey case is another, where the Quitam relator alleged that because the financial arrangement, meaning the hospital-employed physician financial arrangement, was not generating a margin, that if the financial arrangement was taking a loss, looking only directly at the physician professional services, 
then that loss arrangement would be per se not commercially reasonable. But in the final rule, CMS indicated that just because that you're taking a loss on a physician employment arrangement, that loss is not per se commercially unreasonable. Uh, in fact, there's been a lot of analysis with respect to hospitals employing physicians, and based upon a recent survey, the average loss per employed physician by a hospital is about $150,000 at the median. That's a median or 50th percentile, $150,000 loss, which means that in most financial arrangements that the hospitals, when they're employing physicians, are taking a loss. And some of the reasons for that, and when I was in-house, I was questioned quite a few times as to the loss we were taking on our physician-employed network. And I would say that we, as a hospital, are operating our physician-employed practices differently when you compare to a physician's private practice. You look at uh, physician employment arrangements that the general staff are paid higher benefits than if the physician employed those staff. They have more staff members uh, to try to become more efficient. They have higher amount of non-physician practitioners, so there's a higher concentration of nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and techs and the like. And, uh, and this is a big one, is that a lot of times when a hospital employs physicians, especially if you're a tax-exempt entity, that there's more concentration of Medicaid and charity care than if you were in private practice. Now, private practices, likewise, they do provide some charity care, but there's a higher concentration because of the mission of the organization, especially safety net hospitals. Uh, they do provide a higher concentration of Medicaid and charity care. Usually they have better space. And again, I'm painting with a broad brush here. Sometimes it's not, but sometimes they have better space. Uh, there's more marketing that is surrounding uh, physicians that are employed by hospitals. It's usually branded through the hospitals. And also, very frequently in hospital organizations, they allocate overhead. So a certain percentage of the administrative overhead, meaning the, the expenses of the C-suite, the general marketing, uh, the general maintenance, that is all spread and allocated all over their revenue centers. And I've seen that as high as 20%, a 20% allocation. So just because somebody's looking at the financial sheets of the physician employed by the hospital and they determined that a loss is being taken, take a look at those uh, budgets to determine whether or not there is uh, an allocation of overhead that is generating at least a portion of that loss. And when assessing commercial reasonableness, the, the big question is who is actually determining whether a financial arrangement is commercially reasonable. Now I'll talk later in other episodes about creating a, an approval process through a committee, uh, either involving the board or just with general administrators about approving a physician financial arrangements. But definitely a committee uh, internally can assess whether or not a financial arrangement is commercially reasonable. But a lot of times outside assistance is, especially for high risk, an outside assistance is desirable. I do a lot for clients with respect to analyzing physician financial arrangements as being both fair market value as well as being commercially reasonable. And, you know, the commercial reasonableness aspect is is more of a legal definition, I believe, by analyzing the financial arrangement to determine if I could defend this financial arrangement before a governmental agency 
or to a court as being an ordinary business prudent financial arrangement that a normal hospital would enter into. And like I said, it is a qualitative analysis, not a quantitative analysis. And I have developed a tool that can be used as kind of a checklist uh, for evaluating commercial reasonableness. And if you want to get a hold of me and ask me for that form, I'll be delighted to send that to you in Word format. You just uh, contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com, and I will be happy to send that to you. So next, I'm going to be looking at legitimate business purposes. Again, I want to emphasize the, the two definitions, and I'll kind of break those two definitions apart. So first off, is the arrangement uh, a legitimate business purpose for the size of the organization? So first off, does it further a legitimate business purpose of the parties? Is there something inherent within the financial transaction that furthers a, a legitimate business purpose? Now, Stark does say business purpose, and I also want to emphasize, I believe, within business purpose, because the business of an employed physician arrangement is also medical, is that it has to further a legitimate business and medical purpose of the parties. And also, when they mean legitimate business purpose, CMS stated, and this is a quote, that we mean the rental or the purchase, and the purchase could be of services. So the rental or the purchase must be of space, equipment, or services that the lessee or the purchaser needs, intends to utilize, and does utilize in furtherance of its commercially reasonable business objectives. I referenced the St. Joe case that I was uh, was employed by, and part of that case uh, that erupted back in the late 1996-1997 uh, involved the hospital acquiring an imaging practice from two uh, referring physicians. And in the end, the hospital, because business plans changed, the hospital did not use the imaging services that they purchased. So one of the allegations in that case was is that the purchase was not fair market value. It didn't emphasize at that time because this was the 90s. It didn't emphasize at the time that it was not commercially reasonable, but that was really the basis of the allegation. So let me give you some examples. Uh, and again, in these episodes, I'd like to provide examples because that kind of flushes out the issues. And a lot of these are actual examples that I have encountered in my practice. So the first example is going to, going to deal with medical directorships. I received a call from a rehabilitation hospital, and they were concerned from a commercial reasonableness perspective because they had contracts with six separate orthopedic surgeons as medical directors. And they were concerned that the number of physicians performing medical director services was, was not commercially reasonable. And at first, I was a little bit alarmed that they had six medical directors over this one rehabilitation hospital. But the more that I looked into it, each of the orthopedic surgeons had a separate focus, and one was focusing on the back, one was focusing on the hands, et cetera, so they all had a separate focus. And so this, the focus was one issue that I looked at from a commercial reasonableness perspective, but I also looked at what type of meetings were they attending, and were they all attending at the same time? 
And, you know, typically you do not want to see that all six of the medical directors are attending the same meeting unless there is a legitimate business purpose to have them attend that same meeting, especially if you're you're paying each of the medical directors uh, for their attendance. The next one I received a call from a CEO, and the CEO said that uh, they wanted to purchase a medical office building that was owned by a group of physicians. And the CEO was pretty proud that he did obtain a fair market value review of the of the building, and he, they, he shared with me the fair market value review. And let's just say, for the sake of uh, this uh, this episode, is that the the building was valued at ten million dollars. So we believe that. That the building was worth $10 million. So if I was only going to look at fair market value and I have a valuation, I believe the valuation is supportable, then purchasing that building at fair market value for $10 million would meet that requirement under the Stark Law. But it didn't stop there. I asked the CEO, I said, well, tell me a little bit about the building. And they said that the building was built and these, this group of physicians believed that the building would be fully occupied. But today, as it stood, when they wanted to acquire the building, it was only 50% occupied. And the physicians were losing their shirts on the building. So they came to the hospital and asked the hospital if they would purchase the building in order to take them out of that financial burden. And I said, well, it's okay to take them out of that financial burden if you, hospital purchaser, have a legitimate business purpose to utilize the entire building. So I asked him whether or not the hospital was going to use the entire space. And he said, well, no. And I said, well, why are you purchasing the building at fair market value? And he said, well, we really want to assist these physicians because they're losing money on this venture. And maybe sometime in the future we'll use the MOB, but today we don't have any plans to use the other 50%. So here I explained to the CEO the business risk is shifting. The business risk is shifting from the physicians to the hospital, and if the business risk is shifting and the hospital has no intention to use that MOB, uh, 100% of the MOB, then that shifting of that business risk would not be commercially reasonable. I asked him, you know, who would actually purchase a building but would step into a loss situation? So in that case, the hospital did not go forward and purchase the MOB. So that's another example. Uh, and a third example would be that if uh, a group of physicians own a piece of an expensive equipment, uh, but it was not being utilized all the time, and they came to the hospital and said, would you lease this equipment from us on a full-time basis? Well, if the hospital only was going to use the equipment one time per week, then it may not be commercially reasonable for the hospital to lease the equipment on a full-time basis. And then lastly, and this gets more into a compensation arrangement, if you have a quality or even a productivity-based compensation arrangement, but let me focus on quality. If you have a quality bonus program for employed physicians and you're setting the quality indicators very, very low, like even below the current quality performance, then the establishment of that quality bonus program and the allocation of dollars to that bonus program may not be commercially reasonable. Because part of the justification for establishing a quality bonus program is to improve quality. And obviously, if there's compensation tied to that quality program, you'll want to see improvement in quality. And then obviously, then the compensation would be paid for the improvement of that quality. So even the structure of the compensation arrangement, you have to be concerned about 
you know, how you construct it to make sure that it's commercially reasonable. So you want to take a look at the business need for the arrangement. Can the purpose of the arrangement be met in an alternative format? And if you're going to establish any type of goals uh, for the financial arrangement, then you need to monitor and make sure that you meet those goals. So now, now I'm going to turn to the sensibility of the financial arrangement. Does it make sense? Uh, asked differently, would peers without referrals agree to similar terms under like conditions? Uh, for you lawyers who are listening to this, in law school we always learned about the reasonable, prudent person. It's kind of the same context here. You look at a reasonably prudent organization. Would another similarly situated, reasonably prudent organization enter into the same type of transaction? And again, like I said before, with this component of commercial reasonableness, you'll look at the size, type, scope, and specialty. And you know, frequently, if if clients call me and they try to articulate a financial arrangement, uh, what you don't want to hear out of my mouth is, "Hmm, that sounds kind of odd." Uh, so if it sounds odd then that would cause you some pause to determine whether or not you are meeting commercial reasonableness standards under the Stark Law. So to continue with the sensibility is you look at uh, potential alternatives. Is there another preferred way to accomplish the objective versus the transaction? Like if you wanted to employ a new urologist, do you need to employ the chief medical officer's son for that position? Or are there other alternatives that would be better from a financial perspective? Um, also, you take a look at uh, non-standard. If you're entering into an arrangement that is non-standard for your organization, it may not be commercially reasonable. Like by, by way of example, if you have medical directorships, and usually most of your medical directorships, you contract for 100 hours per year. But for this particular medical director, you're contracting at 500 hours a year. The question is, is why 500? Why do you need those additional uh, hours to be performed by this medical director? And then with respect to the oversight, you want to make sure that you have appropriate, commercially reasonable oversight for the arrangement, especially if you have like a, an hourly compensation arrangement or even if it's going to be a fixed arrangement, that there's a way that you can monitor the services being performed. And I'll talk later in an episode about medical directorships and timesheets, but timesheet is just like one way to provide the oversight. Are you appropriately monitoring the financial arrangement for the achievement of the outcomes that are being expected? Or is the medical director actually looking over uh, the service line, making improvements, attending meetings, and the like? And are there other things uh, like, the, like the hours that are being worked? If you believe that the physician is going to work 500 hours, is there a mechanism in place or is there somebody responsible for monitoring that, that arrangement to ensure that the physician is actually putting in the 500 hours? And especially if you have a fixed you know, monthly stipend that you're paying the physician, uh, you should have some type of oversight. So it's commercially reasonable to have that oversight. So most organizations, again, going back to medical directorships, if there's 500 hours, you should have the physician somehow documenting that that physician is performing that 500 hours and have somebody within the organization responsible for that oversight. So usually on timesheets, I like to see that the physician signs a timesheet and then some executive that has oversight of that financial arrangement 
also signs the timesheet validating that the services were actually rendered. So now, as we're concluding this episode, we're going to turn to the Captain Integrity Punch Points. And we have three Captain Integrity Punch Points. So Captain Integrity Punch Point number one, commercial reasonableness is a qualitative analysis. It's not a quantitative analysis. So you look at the sensibility of the financial arrangement. Captain Integrity Punch Point number two, would the financial arrangement make business or medical sense but for the downstream referrals from that physician? So standing alone when you're looking at that financial arrangement, does this make sense? Uh, would another type of organization enter into that this type of financial arrangement? And Cabinet Integrity Punch Point number three, uh, it may not be commercially reasonable if the business risk shifts from physicians to the DHS entity. So if you see business risk shifting, you'll want to make sure that you analyze the legitimacy of the shifting of the business risk away from the physicians and onto the DHS entity or the hospital. So again, to recap, the three Captain Integrity punch points are, number one, commercial reasonableness is a qualitative analysis. Punch point number two, uh, you have to ask yourself, would the financial arrangement make business or medical sense but for the referrals? And Captain Integrity Punch Point number three, that the arrangement may not be commercially reasonable if the business risk inappropriately shifts from the physicians or physician group to the DHS entity. And I look forward to your participation in our next Stark Integrity episode. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity Punch Points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.